Nice. Well, here we go. It is the second episode of our characters series in the untold stories of the Caribou Chilcotin Coast. My name is Jason Ryle, and I'm glad to be your host back again. The idea behind our characters series is to put you in touch with the people that are influential and are the true characters of our region. We've talked before that's that's what it is that makes the Caribou Chilcotin Coast unique is our people. And I know for a fact that there are a lot of people in this region that are, mm, what's the politically correct term, maybe unique, um, compelling, interesting. Uh, And tonight's guest with me tonight is no exception to that description. That's Chris Harris. Welcome to the show tonight, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. It's an honor. It's an honor. I'm a character, am I? You are a character. Absolutely, you are. (laughs) I have uh, had the pleasure. I've known you for years now. I'm going to say roughly 10 years. I'm not keeping track, but it's been quite a while. Uh, You and I are in sort of uh, interlocking circles at times in the tourism world. And uh, I'm obviously a fan of your photography work. And I want to get into that aspect of you in uh, just a little bit, but where I want to start, Chris, is with the stuff that I know about you. And that is you are, I will say, a world-renowned photographer. Knowing that you're a humble guy, you'll probably say, no, I'm not world-renowned. People just, uh, they've known me from, you know, this and that. But I will say world-renowned. You have lived in the Caribou area, um, roughly around the 108 area, because uh, I'm not going to give you your address or anything like that. But you've lived in the Caribou for roughly 20 years. Is that accurate? It's getting on to 30, 35 years. Really? Jason. Yeah. <laughs> I, moved, uh, I moved to the Caribou in 1984. In 1984. And you moved here. This is one of those things that I think I know about you. You moved here from, was it Montreal? So I was born in Montreal and uh, raised in Quebec. But I did most of my education from about high school on in New Brunswick, in the Maritimes. Okay. And uh, it, it was at the University of New Brunswick where I, uh, when one day I dropped into the university bookstore and I saw a Sierra Club calendar and it had photographs of the Coast Mountains. So it was actually photography that uh, turned on that light and I said, that's where I want to be and that's where I want to live and if I can make my life and make my living in those mountains, I'm a happy man. So the minute I finished my last exam in Fredericton, I got on the train and headed to Vancouver, and I've been here ever since. So what did you go to school for? Uh, Well, eventually, well, I I went to university and then I left university. I had a hankering to travel and photograph. Adventure and photography are my two main passions in life. So I always had a world map on my wall, even at university, Mm -hmm. and that's all I ever dreamt about was traveling. And uh, so back in the the hippie days, (laughs) back in the 60s, um, yeah, I I put a a small backpack on, uh, it would be considered a day pack these days, and off I went uh, around the world for a year and a half. And uh, that basically changed my life. It was so educational and uh, inspiring. I traveled over land all the way across to across Asia, to India, down through Australia, back up through the Orient, across Siberia. And yeah, and then uh, I did go back to university, got a degree in anthropology and education. 
And so I came to Vancouver with an education degree. So Okay. And then you were a teacher in Vancouver for uh, quite a while, right? I taught in Vancouver in, in, at the high school level. But I wasn't that satisfied with uh, that career, really. Because by this time, I had turned to the mountains. That was my real passion. And after I arrived in British Columbia, I could not believe... You know, having traveled the world, I just could not believe what I was seeing here. I remember uh, the first week I was here, a friend offered me a drive up the sea to the sky uh, highway to Whistler. And it was like being back in the Nor Norwegian fjords. I, I just couldn't believe that you could be in a city and have this. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that you could ski or sail and play golf on the same day, like, that's just unheard of in, in my upbringing and where I lived. So... I was on cloud nine and I just wanted to explore everywhere in this province. I couldn't wait. So I, I just started and uh, what I discovered was that most British Columbians sort of took this place for granted. And uh, I remember going to uh, Garibaldi Lake one weekend and I were climbing up this beautiful trail to Garibaldi Lake Glacier, a volcanic cone on up on your left here. and. Uh, there was no, it was a weekend and I met two people and they were both Europeans. I said, what's wrong with people? <laughs> this is amazing. I yeah. just couldn't believe it. So, uh, so eventually that was my goal in life was to, uh, make my living in the mountains and to try and share that passion with other people. So that is when I actually got out of the regular teaching classroom and I started an outdoor education program, an outdoor leadership program for the Vancouver school board. Because by then, this was four years after being in the regular classroom. I, uh, I wanted to turn toward the outdoors as my, as my focus. So you were, you were um, escaping and exploring the outdoors on the weekends while you were teaching? Absolutely. Every weekend, I was gone. <laughs> <laughs> so you were escaping to the mountains basically on weekends and uh, probably your summer holidays while you were teaching still at school in Vancouver. That's correct. And I had uh, joined the Alpine Club of Canada, so I used them to help to, or to learn the uh, to learn my craft of mountaineering, learned from uh, people who were already mountaineers and knew the local mountains. And so uh, every weekend I'd be off on some adventure, climbing a peak, uh, fording a river, going somewhere. So uh, that's how I got my grounding because there was no education, you know, there was no out outdoor education or courses or in those days. No, but it, it sounds like you're kind of living the embodiment of a lot of people from across the country and around the world. Like you said, British Columbians often take for granted what we have for a natural landscape in our own backyard. Not necessarily just the Caribou Chilcotin Coast, but you know, places around the entire province, whether it's the Sea to Sky Highway and getting up into the Joffrey Lakes area or uh, any of the uh, mountains and uh, backcountry in the interior in the Okanagan. We often take it for granted and we're so often focused as Canadians of looking around the world like, I want to go to Italy, I want to go to Europe, I want to go to Thailand. I don't know how many people, especially young adults I've talked to that are like, I want to go to Thailand, man, it's just such a huge party. And sure, it is. It's a fascinating place to explore, but don't forget your own backyard. Well, uh, this region, let's talk about the Caribou Chilcotin. Sure. This region is the most diverse region in the whole of Canada. So we have 
we have everything here. We have a playground of not only physical beauty, there's cultural uh, beauty here, and it has all the ingredients to provide experiential vacations, adventures, any kind of recreation. And uh, those are enriching uh, processes that I, I believe that more people should be involved in. And that's why I was very interested in taking young students out into the outdoors to experience the natural world, um, to, uh, to be challenged physically, to be challenged mentally, like as in rock climbing or mm -hmm. survival exercises, canoeing and all, all these <clears throat> different activities is to gain confidence and to learn about our environment and our, to learn about the land because we are who we are as a result of where we live. The land plays a huge part in who we are. Absolutely. You know, we live in this region for a reason, and people live in the Kootenays for a region for a reason. And uh, so we should be discovering what that sense of place really means here. I think, uh, you know, the underlying message, and it's not really that underlying, is that um, we need to have a connection to our land um, and a connection to nature. And I think it's applicable not just in our region, as um, as awesome as our region is, but it's anywhere you go um, in the world, I think, people do have an inherent connection with the land that they live on, that they, um, they either thrive or they die on it. And, right. you know, you either learn to adapt to your natural surroundings, which we're blessed with in BC and in our region, um, but your natural environment does in my opinion, help shape who you are and how you um, approach life, how you, um, how you uh, navigate the challenges in life and how you behave just as a human being. Um, I think in your point, <laughs> I think in your point about us being in a very diverse region in BC, I want to explore a little bit more about what that means for you. Now, are you talking a diverse region in BC or a diverse uh, uh, diversity in BC from purely an environment aspect? Like I know we have, um, you know, we have rainforests, we have arid grasslands, we have mountain peaks. Are you talking about a natural kind of connection that way or natural diversity? Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, I just want to say something about, uh, the value of going into the, into the natural world. And this is what I emphasize with the students. And like we know that indigenous peoples were very close to the land. They were connected to the land. They valued the land. They understood the land, the value of plants and animals and rivers. And, and uh, so they were deeply connected. And we have a tendency not to be that connected. And so this is one of the reasons why I wanted to take not only students, because later I started my own adventure tour business and took seniors out. That was oh. to connect with the land, to understand the land, to value the land, and to understand its recreational potential. And uh, because it's when we value something and understand something that we, that's when we care about that. It's the same for our, our, our human friends and, and lovers and partners. If we understand them and value them, we will care for them. And I feel that if we do the same with our land, we will care for our land, protect our land, and at least operate on the land in a sustainable way. So 
This region, uh, we're talking about the diversity of this region. Yeah, there is also uh, cultural diversity here, as well as the physical diversity of, um, of or biodiversity of the region. Because we do have, we have the coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the coast mountains, so we have glaciers, and uh, we have volcanoes. Uh, they're extinct and they're sleeping at the moment. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> and I, I just want on that note briefly, uh, for people that aren't aware, the coastal mountain range, uh, I want to, can you explain a little bit more about that for me? Because I've heard you say this before, and I know that there is um, ancient volcanic activity in that area, but... I think a lot of people are um, ignorant, for lack of a better word, and I don't say that degradingly, but they're ignorant of the fact that BC has volcanic activity or had. Right. Uh, very, very much so. Right underneath, uh, right underneath us here are hundreds of feet of lava. Like we're sitting on lava right here, right now. So I, I might say that... Uh, the book publications that I have made on this region, mm-hmm. they were to generate a sense of place here. In other words, a sense of understanding of where we live. And that is why when I did a book on the grasslands, what I discovered is most people did not know what the grasslands were back in 12, 15 years ago. They didn't understand what the grasslands were. The grasslands were something you had to cut every weekend in front of the house, you know. So, um, so they did not realize the value and the uniqueness and the rare ecosystem, rare on the planet, that these grasslands are just within an hour where we live, right here. So, uh, and then I, you know, I did a book on, on, on the volcanoes of this region as an example. And people came up to me and said, volcanoes? There's volcanoes here? Precisely my I point. I had no idea. And, and so I worked with the head geologist at the University of British Columbia, because I like to work, I like these books to be, a, to be educational. Mm-hmm. So I want to work uh, or combine art and science together. So when they read the book, they'll, be, they'll have the latest science and information and knowledge that we have about the area. So these huge shield volcanoes that we have out west, um, they were created 5 to 10 million years ago. And that lava came up from 3,000 feet below the surface. And... Uh, the, the, the mantle on top of the, uh, you know, the mantle on top of the, the earth where we live, where, mm-hmm. where we walk on, that is constantly moving west. But the funnel which the lava came up was stayed stationary. Right. So that's why you have a whole series of, uh, of volcanoes like that. But anyway, so, yeah, this area is very volcano, volcanic. There used to be over 200 uh, volcanic cones all around this region, right around here. Really? But most of them have disappeared now due to the fact that there's been two ice ages since the, those eruptions. But okay. there's still a few left. Uh, the one at Lone Butte, that cone is an example of, of one that still remains. That's fantastic. And So um, that's a sense of place. Like That's a sense of understanding that, that these, that's why these books were created. That was the main motive behind these books is to help educate and uh, give people, help people to reconnect with the land where we live. So you're, uh, you know, I don't know if uh, you can see it. Uh, you're tapping on your book and it might just be off screen. I'll hold it up for just a second here, Chris. Uh, this one is, uh, now this 
if I remember, if I've got my numbers right, this is your 14th book? Uh, 13th. Your 13th book. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> uh, all right. And this one uh, is the, it's called The Photographer's Journey. And it sounds like you've had a kind of a magical journey throughout the entire Caribou Chilcotin Coast. Where does this book take us through specifically? This takes us through the entire Caribou Chilcotin Coast region. Okay. So it's, it, the whole region is divided up into sort of the key and most diverse areas, pockets of the entire region, and I concentrated on those. So people can get a really good uh, overall feeling for the uniqueness of all the different various uh, parts of the region. Okay. And it's uh, it's almost like a retrospective. You know, it uh, it's taken uh, images in this book here are have been taken over the years as I have uh, explored the entire area. One of the things that I like about your books, Chris, is that they can also be used uh, in some aspects as an educational tool to be able to teach people about the natural landscape that surrounds us and tell them or at least show them why it's important. And I think that's probably one of the more important issues or one of the more important questions is why is this important? And your books, um, in my opinion, they speak to that a little bit. It is a uh, photographic journey, so you don't get into the academics of it, of, of why, you know, from a biological perspective, but it is important and it's um, a glimpse into the importance of that natural landscape. Well, if you remember, my first uh, books were basically tourist books. Um, I suppose I was a tourist too at that time, you know, exploring everywhere I could, uh, just because it was an amazing opportunity to combine uh, adventure and photography. But uh, eventually uh, that sort of got old for me and uh, I didn't feel I was contributing that much. And that's when I made the adjustment. I changed the format of the books and uh, the, the, the most recent five books are larger and they're educational. So there was an, uh, there, each one is uh, combining art and science. So there is a tremendous amount of uh, information, cultural information, our na natural history information, the grasslands. A lot of the grassland ecologists use it as, like a, as a Bible on the grasslands. It's done by the leading uh, grassland ecologists in the region. So they are extremely educational and they were designed to be that way. And uh, yeah, I'd like to see them used in the classroom more and more, absolutely. Okay, so this, uh, like I said, this is your 13th book, um, and I have a copy of your 14th book. I have to ask, are you working on future books? No, I'm not, actually. You're not? Really? <laughs> uh, no. Um, this was, uh, I'm not going to say it's my last book, because I don't like to ever say anything. Yeah, nothing's last. ever final, right? <laughs> but, um, no, I've I've changed I've moved on in my photography right now. So right now I'm seeking new avenues of, uh, of visual um, inquiry and visual uh, investigation and taking my photography to new, to new places altogether. Mm -hmm. So the photography uh, that I use to produce these books, in order to generate a sense of place, they need to be documentary in style or representational. So that, you know, you recognize the area and you see the beauty of the land. 
my photography now is uh, much more expressive and it's going beyond duplicating the world or replicating the world as we see it. Okay. We're now going behind the outward appearance of things so that I'm actually seeking the unseen. So it's getting a little bit more abstract mm -hmm. and a lot more expressive. If you refer to the painting medium, you know, it's uh, going from being a representational painter into like in, uh, being a cubist or a surrealist or sure. an impressionist. And so I'm expanding into new areas. And uh, so I'm mostly teaching now. I'm running a lot of uh, workshops, uh, bringing people into the province to, uh, to learn new ways of expressing themselves through the medium of photography, which is an art form. Well, of course. Yeah. And I think maybe in that fashion, Chris, that's where you've plugged yourself into being a tourism supporter. Not only are your books and you yourself as an ambassador, are you um, fulfilling that tourism supporting function, but by bringing people in, I think you're also contributing to tourism as a whole in general. You know, you're bringing people from I'm going to imagine from around the world who want to come and learn from you. And while they're here learning from you, they have no choice but to get out and enjoy uh, what we have here. Whether it's uh, whether they're staying at your house or staying in a hotel or staying with friends or camping uh, in a provincial park, they're a tourist that have come here for a reason. And that reason is to learn from you and also to probably enhance their interest in British Columbia. Absolutely. Now I've, I've been involved in the tourist industry for 35, 40 years, actually. As a matter of fact, I pioneered adventure tourism in this province. I started the very, well, I started the, uh, the outdoor program for students. For students. Yeah. That was, but I was within the uh, school system then. Uh, after I left the school system, I went into business and started the very first adventure tour business in the province, probably the country. That's and fantastic, so, man. That's amazing. Yeah. So that was in the early 70s. And, and so the goal was still the same, is to take people out and to experience what British Columbia had to offer and to try and connect with uh, the, our diversity and, and the values educational values, uh, emotional values, intellectual yeah. values. And so uh, that's where I actually started taking seniors uh, out into the uh, out into the land to, to have experiential um, adventures, canoeing adventures and hiking adventures. And uh, so that was that was wonderful. So I've been uh, guiding for over 35 years, taking people out and um, and because this was the very first adventure tour business, everything we did was a first. Okay, yeah. Like I, I ran, I guided the very first commercial canoe trip around the Barren Lakes. Uh, I did the very first mountaineering expedition up Mount Logan, Canada's highest peak. The first sea kayaking adventure down the, what was then called the Queen Charlotte's or Haida Gwaii. Like everything we did was a first. And, and so... Life was a real adventure for ourselves as well as for uh, all our clients uh, who came from across Canada and abroad. And I used photography throughout all my adventures. Uh, I photographed every adventure and I put together uh, slideshows for marketing and so on and, uh, and showing. I used to have huge uh, multimedia slideshows at the Planetarium in Vancouver, which basically 
where people came just for uh, tourist reasons, just to see the province. Sure. You know, people in the city wanted to see see the province, see the beauty of the land. So, no, it was an amazing time. Uh, it was a it was a fascinating time of my life. Uh, it was a very rich time of my life, uh, educational in many ways, and you know, it's all pieced together into eventually uh, being a, a publisher. And uh, but definitely, uh, tourism is has been a part of who I am here, mm-hmm. and most recently during the last two years, I've actually been an ambassador for the region in that. Uh, I have been traveling and presenting, uh, like last year, as far east as Montreal and uh, down into the United, Northwest in the United States, uh, putting on multimedia shows and talking about our region. Now, sorry, you're getting ahead of me here. because okay, I, I, Where I want to go is, um, I, I think where you're going with this is, uh, you're, you've been traveling around talking about our region and... Uh, dare I say a specific part of our region and that being the Chilcotin arc. Is that, is that fair? Is that what you've been sort of focused on a little bit more in your, uh, national and North American travels is, is that aspect of the Chilcotin arc. And then I want to get you to tell me and tell our viewers and listeners what the Chilcotin arc is. Right. Uh, well, there was an F well, I've been doing, uh, I've been presenting, um, uh, I've been on tour with every one of my book publications for years, actually. So I have been t- speaking to this region as a whole uh, with regard to whatever the emphasis of the book okay. was. So um, it, it may have been the, the volcanic landscapes or the grasslands, or in terms of the book Flyover, uh, was, which was more a uh, cultural history book about the uh, bush pilots of the region and op- the opening up of the region through aviation and... So I have uh, presented about the entire region. Mm-hmm. Uh, most recently, it has been about a phenomenon known as the Chilcotin Arc. Okay, There's so let's, no doubt about let's that. dive into that. <laughs> because yeah. it's, it's a, such an amazing story. We're not talking about a physical arc like Noah's Ark. Uh, well, um, it is actually spelt A-R-K, but it started off A-R-C because it is the shape of an arc. I see. Okay. This, this, this piece, this phenomenon, this piece of uh, real estate, uh, was in the shape of an arc, but it took on a different meaning in that this, this phenomenon, this Chilcotin arc phenomenon could be, uh, a place where life could survive as in like Noah's Ark. So it has other meetings as well. So maybe I better explain what the Chilcotin arc <laughs> yeah, is. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, while I was photographing for this book, the most recent book, I came across, I heard this word, Chilcotin Arc. I had never heard of it before. And I asked around, no one had ever heard of it. Eventually, I was led to a gentleman whose name was Dave Needs. And Dave Lee Needs lived in, the, in an area known as the Precipice. It's actually a volcanic gorge which connects the Chilcotin Plateau with the coast. And it's been used as a, uh, a trading route by indigenous peoples for millennia. Okay. So, um, so Dave and his wife, Rosemary, lived down in the precipice. So I phoned him up and I asked him if I could meet with him and uh, he, if he could tell me what the Chilcotin Ark was because was, I was told he was the guy who knew everything about it. 
So I did. I drove down his 16-kilometer driveway and met uh, Dave and Rosemary, uh, where they had carved out their, their home out of their surrounding environment. And uh, for two days, Dave explained what the Chilcotin Ark was. So he was a teacher, in a sense, for you, educating you on what's, um, uh, what the Ark was from an environmental perspective. Absolutely. So Dave had the environmental and scientific background to realize that, uh, and, and by s traveling in the mountains and studying maps and so on, he began to realize that there was an area within this region that was the most biodiverse, uh, it was the largest, most biodiverse wilderness complex anywhere in the temperate world, if not the world. Now that's pretty amazing. That's a bold statement. That is a very, very bold statement. And it, it is, a, this is a large area. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it on Google Maps, you can see that it remains intact and, and the clear cut comes right up to the border of this, this area known as the Chilcotin Arc. Now, Dave at that time heard that the, uh, the timber industry was about to move westward across the Fraser and start clear-cutting the plateau. And so that's when he decided to go to bat to try and protect the natural values of this, uh, this unprotected, or this, well, it was unprotected area. Okay. Because of, the, because of its uh, biodiverse values. Yes, it's important. Yeah. It's important. And um, <clears throat> so he, along with another uh, friend of his, began to negotiate with government, First Nations, and industry to try and protect, to lay various forms of protection so that this whole Chilcotin Ark would be protected. And it was just at this time in history when uh, Mike Harcourt was in power, and they, were, they had decided to set 12% of BC's land base aside. Mm -hmm. So Dave spent the next 20 years attending these uh, uh, land management uh, core process uh, negotiations. He went to those negotiation tables for 25 years. And what he did was he, he negotiated toward the protection of this area. But the most amazing thing is he did it in complete secrecy. Nobody at any table knew what he was negotiating toward. And that is because back in the 70s, with all the environmental warfare that was going on, fueled by the uh, media, um, Dave and his friend Rick Careless, they decided that they didn't want the media and they didn't want the, the, the attention and all that came with that. So they decided to do everything in complete secrecy. So... Dave was at tables with the Ministry of Environment, Ministry of Forestry, Ministry of Mining. They never knew what Dave was secretly negotiating toward, which was the protection of this area. They didn't know about the Chilcotin Ark either. Nobody knew what it was. And we brought the story of the Chilcotin Ark to the, to the world for the very first time in this book. Okay. It is described in this book. So Dave told me all about the Chilcotin Ark. And so... I said, so Dave, you say this is a secret, and, and it is because nobody knows anything about it. I said, do you want it to remain a secret or 
I said, I'm working on this book. Can I take that story to the world? Otherwise, it's going to it's gonna disappear with you. Like mm -hmm. Secrets die with the people <laughs> that hold them. That's right. So, And he just looked at me and said, Chris, you take it to the world and I'll support you in any way I can. And that's why it's in the book. And that's why we have a, a Blu-ray disc on the uh, Chilcotin Arc. And uh, so it's an amazing story. When you think it's, it's the size, it's two times the size of Banff and Jasper National Parks combined. It's larger than the country of Belgium. And it is intact. And it is the largest, most biodiverse wilderness complex anywhere in the temperate world. So, so it's something that we could build on. Like it, it has tourism value. It has educational value. It has spiritual value. Uh, it's, it's a gift that if we don't take advantage of, I think we're, you know, we're, well, and we're I, just... <laughs> I can see quite uh, visibly it's got personal value for you as well. Well, of course, I, I had been exploring the Ark, but I never knew it as the Ark. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I knew uh, many of its values in terms of beauty. And we have to realize that beauty is the largest economy in the world. Okay. You, know, you never hear that, but it's the truth. Beauty is the largest economy in the world. We spend so much of our money, our personal money, seeking physical beauty, cultural beauty. We travel the globe daily. Millions of people are traveling the globe every day in search of beauty of one kind or another. It's important to, our, to who we are, to our spiritual base, our sure. core, our core. So uh, this... The, the spiritual value, therefore, or the, 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 the beauty, the value of beauty of this Chilcotin arc is immense. So you've, you've told me now what it is. Can you give me a description of where it is for people that might want to, um, uh, not that I want to encourage people necessarily to go there, because if it's so valuable, we don't want it to suddenly become the next tourist spot, but... I think it's important for people to understand and at least know where exactly it is. Right. They could buy my book, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless <laughs> plug. All right, good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dear. Um, well, uh, first of all, I should say, uh, I don't think we should keep, uh, it's not a secret we, and we don't want it to be a secret. We want people to know about it and to visit it. You don't preserve and value something you don't experience or know or touch and feel. Like the more people who walk and feel through the boots with boots on the ground, that's how you're going to value that and protect it. Like what we were talking about before. Yeah. So, um, but and and it's not going to. Uh, it's I don't think it's going to have millions of people walking on it for a long time yet because a lot of it is quite remote. Yes. And uh, you uh, you just don't drive through it. It's not like uh, it's not easily accessible. Ice. No, it's no, <laughs> no. So, um, but uh, so it extends from the Coast Mountains in the west all the way to the Fraser River in the east. So just west of here in Williams Lake lie the grasslands. Uh, that is the, the first ecosystem of the arc, is the grasslands. Okay. And it extends through the foothills of the Coast Mountains and extends all the way up to the Itcha, Itcha and Rainbow and Nogacho Volcanic Parks, which is near Anaheim Lake. All right, yeah. 
So if you travel west from Williams Lake and along Highway 20, as you look to your uh, to the south, mm-hmm. to the left, uh, you're looking into the Chilcotin Arc. So all the way to uh, Anaheim Lake, all the way through just before until you drop down over the hill into uh, the Balakula Valley. Right. And I've traveled. And in it? fact, the Chilcotin Arc bumps right up against uh, the uh, rain, uh, the Spirit Bear Rainforest. The, the Great Bear Rainforest? The Great Bear Rainforest. Yeah. So in actual fact, if you, which is not a, it's not a physical uh, boundary, boundary yeah. uh, thing. It's, it's just like the arc is really. Um, it's a concept, but they actually join together. So can you imagine if you combine those two together and told the world what we had here? It's beyond <laughs> well, it's, comprehension, it's, really. Yeah, and it sounds like it's, um, you know, from a tourism perspective, it's something that we want to tell people about and show them and have them understand and recognize our, uh, its importance. I think if, uh, you know, you look at it from a, a pendulum swing, there is a point where if we've told enough people about it that it might run into danger of this term that uh, I hear popping up now more and more, and that is over-tourism. Right. And uh, well, I, I think I, we want to try to stay away from that, but it's a delicate balancing act. Well, the, most, the, key, the key to all this is education. We need to educate tourists. And um, uh, that's where uh, I'm uh, a great supporter of the small independent tourist uh, tourism operator who has this land uh, has the values of the who understands the values of this land and who looks after it and who is willing to educate the people that they take out to experience that land. We need to educate people about the Chocotin Arc, and that's just not from us Western uh, Western our Western perspective. We need to include indigenous values here too. We're on unceded territory, so a large part of that land is uh, is of tremendous spiritual value, and it's it's, it's mm-hmm. their land, right? So we need to, um, you know, destination British Columbia, all tourism, all ministries of of, uh, of government actually need to become aware of what we have here and how we can move forward in a responsible and sustainable way and include all governance and include uh, an educational component that helps us to understand the value of this. It's only when we understand will we care and preserve. That right there is also a very profound statement too. Uh, And one I agree with, I think we have to understand it and then be able to work towards preservation of it, which in turn will lead to preservation of uh, an eventual sustainability of mankind. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> there's a lot hanging in the balance here. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, you know, it, it, to and, be and fair. And climate change is happening too. And that's another aspect. We, you know, we talk about this, uh, this referral to uh, Noah's Ark. Um, this area has not been fractured or divided up. So that means that uh, wildlife, all forms of plant and animal life, can migrate throughout this vast area. And it also has several thousand feet uh, variation in altitude. So if climate 
warming, for example, continues, instead of animals having to travel several hundreds of kilometers north to find a cooler environment, they don't have to. They can, they can just go up in mm -hmm. elevation. So, in fact, life could survive in the arc should climate warming continue. Much like the same thing happened in Yukon, Alaska during the last ice age. There was another refugia, which the ark is, in fact, it is a refugia. So during the last ice age, there was, a, there was an area known as Beringia. And it was, an, it was an area that did not freeze over. It remained ice-free in the ice age. During the ice during age. During the ice age. Life survived in that refugia. And then when it, the climate started to warm, it, they, they moved out of there and went all the way down through South America. Down to, right, yeah. All the way down to here. So this, in fact could you know i mean that's a big if I'm, i know sure, but i yeah. mean it's it's an i it's just the concept that this could be a refugia it could be a place where life could survive if climate warming did continue it's happened before mm -hmm. during an ice age so i mean it could happen again in the, in the reverse situation it could uh, absolutely and that's uh i think that's safely a prediction that's uh far outside <laughs> far, our far lifespan outside our, yeah but it you know it just shows because uh, there's a museum uh, in yukon now about beringia so it's education we need to educate people about this area and its value so we do take care of it you know so let me uh, you know obviously uh, your connection to uh, nature and the environment is uh, paramount, and it's it's obvious when people get a chance to talk to you. Uh, you mentioned earlier on that you had a chance to travel the, glo uh, the globe. You went around the world as a young adult, and you uh, got to see some amazing places. It sounds like even just in the short uh, grocery list that you gave that you've uh, seen some incredible places. And I want to, uh, if I can, I want to get you to go back in your memory banks and this is a total change of gears here now. <laughs> and I want to see um, if you have a favorite or if you have a place in your mind from your adventures around the world that stands out and why. I think uh, one of the uh, great, greatest things that I learned was that, uh, and that's why I have stayed here in the Caribou Chilcotin, is that I have a tremendous sense of value for what we have here because I have experienced the rest of the world and I know what we have here and it's beyond like it's exceptional so I I have never felt a desire that I had to go somewhere else and that's why I basically I've stayed here for 35 years and I have photographed this region over and over and over and I've only scratched the surface so um, you know uh, traveling in your young 20s uh, when you leave home where you're, you know, you've been brought up in a certain culture in a certain part of the, this amazing country and certain uh, values. And all of a sudden you're exposed to uh, the values of many, many different cultures. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden your world just shattered and uh, it's like, wow, okay. It's life isn't just what mom and dad told me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, it just uh, emphasized the value of uh, education. And I think I learned so much about different cultures, uh, about different landscapes, 
And I think that's what led me when I, when I returned and went back to university. I ended up t- studying uh, anthropology and archaeology just because of what I had seen uh, and experienced during my travels. So it opened up a world for me that uh, gave me an international perspective, which I think is very useful. I mean, if you spend your whole life in one town, uh, you know, I find that's, it's fairly limiting. Yes. And uh, to have that international uh, sort of bank of experiences and uh, having an understanding of how different people think and the value of different cultures and different spiritual values, it's important. I think it's incredibly educational for uh, people as people to... um, Make that journey to to take some time and go and travel the world or some of it. You know, whatever you're able to accomplish in your time, um, in your lifetime, to go. No other experience teaches you more about yourself and the world at the same time than traveling. Absolutely, I think one of the things we need. <clears throat> We need more than ever in this day and age is a sense of understanding. Mm-hmm. And that's one great value of travel is to acquire a sense of understanding. You can't just go into another country and tell them how they should live and how they should think. Uh, you know, that is not a healthy way to. No, I agree. It so, it's, uh, speaks to a level of ignorance. Yeah. So uh, that, uh, yeah, so that's. That's a huge part of who you are going forward in your life, that sense of understanding. And, you know, we sit down together and we have a sense of understanding and it's based on uh, meeting a lot of different people in the world and listening to their stories. And that's what you're doing right here is listening to other people's stories and getting a, a sense of uh, who we are as a region and, and, and uh, what we have to offer as a land. What I what I'm taking away from this, Chris, is uh, and again, not to be too blatant about, um, you know, my support and my passion for our region, uh, and your support as well, is that in your international travels, I'll I'll be honest, my international travels are are very limited. I haven't traveled the world. I haven't gone to you know many of these different places. Uh, I have done some, so I have a little bit of an understanding of um, the importance of travel, but. What I'm taking away from this is that in your adventures around the world, you chose to come back here. And that's important to me. It's it's obviously important to you. And I think it's important to the people that are watching or listening is that this is a place that changes people's lives purely based on your connection and your personal value with nature. Nowhere else in the world, I think, uh, again, and I might be speaking out of turn, nowhere else in the world gives you an opportunity to connect with nature like living in Canada, British Columbia, and our region. Right. Well, Jason, I consider uh, that I am blessed in this life because of, uh, of my two passions of adventure and photography. Because I have literally run or guided several hundred trips of various uh, various kinds, mm-hmm. and to share uh, an outdoor experiential undertaking in the wilderness or in remote areas or in just 
all sorts of different parts, not necessarily remote. Uh, some of my workshops now are not in uh, remote wilderness areas, but um, to uh, to have experienced the highs that people experience, coming together, fighting through adversity, weather, you know, uh, hardships during uh, during the trip, uh, and then succeeding and um, having a successful adventure and coming together, it's just like I have had so many friends. I still have students come to me and visit uh, from 40, 50 years ago. I have parent, their parents, those students' parents have come with me. Some of them now, uh, because of what they have learned um, in the outdoors, they are judges, doctors, lawyers, Supreme Georges. Like, they are throughout the province at, at every level. And I meet them all the time, and they are always so grateful at the experience that they had and that they shared together in the outdoors. So I like, and I have also um, worked with juvenile delinquents, uh, like in an outward bound style mm -hmm. um, program uh, down at Porto Cove near, uh, near Vancouver, near Squamish. Yep. And I have seen the results of, um, of these chaps who have been in trouble. And this month long outdoor program is, is their avenue to get out of parole or whatever it's their it's their opportunity to break away and come clean and uh and uh, a little bit of redemption it's the i've seen the effect of challenge in the outdoors and uh learning about yourself challenging yourself and coming through it together as a group and uh i've seen the results of these people it's fulfilling it's amazing it's and i have I have shared that with so many hundreds and hundreds of people. So I feel I'm really blessed. So photography has been a big part of that. And just my desire to explore and experience uh, nature at all levels is the other component there. <laughs> so in your adventures, Chris, uh, surely, you know, you've had run-ins with uh, wildlife. Uh, undoubtedly, you've encountered people along your way. Have you ever come across a moment where you have been so awestruck that you have either missed a shot or just been captivated by your surroundings that you just kind of you're so lost in that moment that you you lose yourself absolutely um <clears throat> there was a there was a trip that which i found to be well there was a couple of them but <laughs> uh there was one specifically where i found uh the experience was extremely profound and that is, I, uh, when I was doing the flyover book, I flew over a lake in the Coast Mountains, in the foothills of the Coast Mountains, and I saw a little iceberg in the middle of the lake and this calving glacier coming into the lake. And I looked down and I made a mental note of where I was. I said, one day I'm going to return here and I'm going to bring my canoe so that I can canoe and photograph amongst those glaciers and those icebergs. Excuse me. Yep. <laughs> So I uh, contacted uh, Duncan Stewart out at Nippo Lake at Tweedsmere Air, and I made uh, arrangements to fly my two canoes in, my yellow and red canoe for photography, right? Yeah. Uh, into uh, this lake called Jacobson Lake. And, uh, and I was going to establish a base camp there, and then I would just 
paddle amongst the lake, around the, the lake. Hopefully there would be some icebergs and I would photograph there. So uh, my wife and her daughter and partner, the four of us went out to Nimble Lake and we met Duncan. And Duncan said, Chris, I got a bit of a problem here. One of my pilots flew over the lake yesterday and it was just chock-a-block with icebergs. The whole, this glacier calved like I've never seen it before and uh, we can't land. So he needs to land on the lake. Yes, he needs to land on the lake okay. to put me down there. So uh, I said, oh, and then he, he said, well, he said, there could be some good news in that, you know, overnight the wind could have blown the glaciers down to one end of the lake and maybe I still can. He said, but the choice is up to you, you know, like if we fly you and it doesn't, you can't land it, you still mm -hmm. have to pay for it. In other right, words. Yeah. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll take the chance. We're going. So uh, we flew in and I remember looking around the last the mountain as we came around and sure enough, all the bergs had uh, come down to one end and we were able to land. But the fact was, we spent the next week paddling amidst these massive icebergs. And that's one thing. I mean, that was a powerful environment to be in. They're, sure. They're huge and they're nine times larger underneath than they mm -hmm. are above. And if they rolled, it would have been the end of us. Uh, uh, but anyway, that Goodness. aside, that's sort of like being on the glacier. And you just, no, it's not going to roll right now, uh, right? Right. <laughs> and uh, so I remember my wife and I in the tent at night, we started to think about what it is we were experiencing here. Because when we're around the, the icebergs, they're dripping. Just they're dripping and melting like crazy. Yeah. And all around our canoe, bubbles of air are coming up from the melting ice that's underneath us. Mm -hmm. So we have bubbles of air coming up around our canoe and water dripping down on us from above. And so we started to think about where we were and, and what this was that we were experiencing. So those icebergs were made up of snowflakes that came down 60 to 80,000 years ago from a completely unpolluted atmosphere to a completely unpolluted planet back yeah. then, right? right? No humans. Right. And therefore, that water that we were drinking is the purest water on the planet. And that air that had been trapped in the ice for at least 50,000 years was the purest air we could be breathing on the planet and like all of a sudden the profoundness of what we were doing and what we were experiencing was unbelievable and like it's still like when i i have that slideshow to music and everything Amazing. and when i watch it I, I i still have goose bumps because it is like when you think deeply enough yeah. about what you are experiencing it's not yeah. just you know, it's not like tourism who just consumes, you know, that's a nice, click, uh, yeah. that's a nice iceberg. No, this was a, this is a lot more than that. So. That's a moment in time. That, that is definitely a moment in time. <laughs> wow. That is mind blowing. An experience like that. Uh, and, and then to, to be so self-aware too, Chris, on top of it, to recognize that, yes, this is what's happening. Uh, you know, the air we're breathing, the water we're drinking, what's what's around us right now is the purest form of it that the world has ever known. Absolutely. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. Or even to hike across the uh, these old uh, shield volcanoes. 
boots on the ground. Like you can feel the energy of the planet. That has come, the lava that you're walking on has come from 3,000 feet into the core of the planet. Mm -hmm. The energy, uh, everything about walking in that environment is powerful. You, 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 feel, you feel that. You can't help but feel it. You can't help but feel it. So it's one of my favorite, all-time favorite books to have photographed was the volcano book. And uh, to experience the, the planet at a very raw, primal state, you know, like, yeah, powerful. So, uh, you know, Chris, I've, uh, I've seen a number of your books and one of the things that's always amazed me about photographers and even photographers in general is when you're flipping through a book or you're appreciating a, a, a miraculous photo is asking that question of how did they get that shot? And I know that your adventures have taken you into some very remote places. You ever have any run-ins with wildlife? Oh, well, I have, of course. <laughs> and, um, you know, well, that's part of uh, wilderness travel. It's never deterred me. I kind of look forward to, uh, to seeing wildlife, you know. I mean, I do. I, I always look forward to seeing, uh, but I've never felt uh, intimidated or worried. I feel that uh, the farther out there you are, actually, probably the safer you are. Really? To meet animals uh, away from urban areas is, to me, much more safe than uh, than meeting one close to a, a dump or a town. <laughs> well, sure. But, I, um, I, you know, I can tell you one story. It was in Tweedsmere Park, and I was photographing for my book uh, called Chilcotin, and I knew I had to have a bear picture in there, so I actually went to the Bella Coola River uh, to photograph bears. But, um, so I didn't know anything about the local area, actually, and... Uh, Rather than being sensible and asking somebody. Sorry, I have to laugh. You went to the Bella Coola Valley and you didn't know about bears. No, I didn't know about the, the land or I didn't know about, I didn't know, I didn't have any local knowledge. Okay. Let's put it that way. Sorry. Yeah, go on. And uh, uh, one morning, so I arrived there in the evening and sure enough, I did see bears and cubs down along the, uh, down along the river fishing. Mm -hmm. So I said, perfect. Tomorrow morning. I'll get up early and uh, I'll see where I can go and uh, get some bear pictures. So I was walking along a trail above this cliff and I could see bears down below. So I was walking along this trail. I had um, my photographic vest, my photo vest on. I had a tripod and a camera in one hand and I had bear spray in one of my vest pockets. I just quietly walking along early in the morning, quiet, minding my own business, looking for bears, when all of a sudden I heard this a huge explosion and uh, a, a hundred meters in front of me, this mother grizzly bounced out of the forest and onto the trail and stood up and faced me. And uh, so what I always did in, under those circumstances was I tried to talk to the bear and it's, it's calm and collected a manner as I possibly could just to let him know I was a friend. Okay. So I told this bear, I said, listen, I'm just a photographer. I'm just taking pictures. And, uh, <laughs> but meanwhile, while I was talking, he uh, dropped down on all fours and he came at me full bore, full bore. Oh, and I should say that I had also, since then, two cubs had come out on the trail, but they ran away the other way. Oh, boy. So now it was just me and the mother. 
So while I was talking, I was gently trying to find my bear spray in my pocket, but it was in a deep lens pocket. And I couldn't find the damn thing. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, this bear is coming at me. And so I said, oh, this is serious. <laughs> so I threw my camera and tripod on the ground. I took my bear, my eyes off the bear and I, I looked oh, down no. and I tried to make a serious attempt at getting my bear spray. So I just got it in my hand. And I looked up and the bear was within about two or three meters of me. Oh dear. So it's like, it's as close as we are. Yeah. But it jammed on its brakes right there in front of me, turned around and tore off after her cubs. And I just, it just left me standing there <laughs> contemplating life. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> because it all flashed before no, your eyes. So fast. I mean, I was a goner. I, I, I knew I was gone. I knew I was hers anyway, whatever she decided yeah. to do. But she spared my life, so I was grateful for that and moved on. <laughs> you know, it uh, explains a lot now, Chris, your your value and your passion for life because you almost lost it. <laughs> See, those are the kind of experiences, uh, you know, I love the outdoors. I don't get enough opportunity. I don't give myself enough opportunity to go out and go camping, but I have a healthy respect for anything that can eat me. <laughs> If it's a bear, if it's a cougar, if yeah. it's uh, anything yeah. that is a well, predatory I mean, animal. I, the closer you are to death, the closer you are to living at the max. It's like when you're mountaineering. It's when you're climbing these uh, huge peaks in the world. Uh, there are a lot of extreme dangers you know the dangers are there. You're, you're crossing crevasses. You know that, that this cornice could break off at any moment. Uh, you know an avalanche could come down and wipe out your uh, camp. Um, but chances are, it's not gonna happen while you are just there at that moment in time. But, so, you're alive. You're alert. You're totally living to the max. You're so alive, you're so intense. And you're, you're so appreciative of life that it's, it's like a drug. It's, it's an addiction. That's why you, climbers keep going back and they'll climb and climb until, you know, some get through, but some don't. Because there is a natural high. There's a high to living so fully and so full of adrenaline and, and intensity that you want to, you got to do it again. You know, there are two words that I, that I uh, like to think about with regard to these books. Okay. One is topophilia. One is biophilia. So philia mean, is the Greek word for love, love of. Okay, yeah. Topo meaning the land. The land. So, so love of the land. That's what these books are about. A sense of place, sense of, a sense of the land. Yeah. A love of the land. Biophilia is a love for life. Biology, it's our life, it's our life, it's, our, it's who we are. Biophilia is a, is a love for life. So those two words, to me, I sort of go by them because they go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. A love of life, a love of the land, and, uh, and then I add the love for my photography. And, uh, of course, <laughs> yeah. I, think that's I don't a, know the word for that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good ethos for everyone to practice in their daily lives is um, love what you do, love where you are 
and appreciate what you have. And I know that that's not really applicable for everyone at every time. That's a very general statement, but uh, it does, uh, it reminds me of what we were talking about before um, off camera. And that is you yourself are uh, the kind of person that lives in the moment. You, you admitted that you have a poor memory because (laughs) it's behind you. It's, it's in the past. You're, you're present now. You're living life now. You have an appreciation for it now, and life doesn't get any better than right now. Especially right now for me, because I have no more time to waste. <clears throat> I have no more time to waste now. Oh, you got a lot of time left, Chris. <laughs> a lot left to explore. But um, so you mentioned that uh, <clears throat> saying, like, how did you get that photograph? Like, yeah. I have a motto that I carry with me. I went to hear a a slide presentation by a very well-known nature photographer, globally known. He worked for National Geographic. Um, Franz Lanting. And he told the story of his first job for National Geographic. So he's being sent to, I think it was Madagascar or somewhere. And so, you know, he has uh, assistants and all this gear is being transported around the globe. They're probably pumping out four or five hundred thousand dollars for him to go and and photograph Mm -hmm. so he was called into the chief editor's office for his last few words of of advice and uh, so the meeting was over and France was leaving and the editor said France there's just one more thing France said yes and the editor said just remember there are no excuses so in other words you can't come back You've been hired because you're one of the best in the world. Don't come back and say, well, it rained every day. I'm sorry I didn't get yeah. any images. Like, no, you have you have to get what you're capable of getting. And you are capable of getting, and that's why you're hired. So I carried that with me. So, for example, if I'm hiking across the itch of volcano, photographing for a book, I know that I am not going to fo- hike 10 days with full camera gear, camping gear. I'm not going to do that another time. That's a one one only. So the weather, I have no control over the weather. I'm going to be dealt this deck of cards and I have to make it work. And I know that I have no excuses. I can't go back and stand up and make a presentation about the book and say, I'm sorry, I don't have any images because, you know, it (laughs) rained and stormed. The weather was bad. I have to... if it takes working 20 hours a day, that's what I have to do. And that's my, that was always my approach. I worked really, really hard to get what I needed to get to do what I wanted to do. So is that, uh, is that a difference then, Chris, between a photographer who's hired for a job and a person like yourself who is out on an adventure uh, purely out of passion where well, these are sort of self-assignments, you know, that instead of being told by a publisher what to do, I'm the publisher in this case, I'm a self-publisher, so I choose my own book topics, subjects, and I set my own goal. I say, okay, I got two years, and I have to complete this within two years, and then I go for it. Okay. So, yeah, so I set, I set my own assignments, and I tell myself what I have to do every morning. <laughs> 
<laughs> I am my own boss, which is the best. So you'll, you know, in uh, cases like that, where if you were to go out into the uh, Ilgatch's uh, range, or if you go somewhere very remote, and you don't get the shot that you think you uh, wanted to get in that trip, will you take time and go back again a month later, uh, a year later, or uh, at another time in order to get the shot that you know in your brain that you're trying to get? Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I make notes about when I, when I, sh <clears throat> sometimes when I'm at a place, I know if it's accessible, I know I can get a much better image at a certain time of day with certain kind of light. So I have that in my little notebook and my mental notebook as well as a written book. And, uh, so I'm always aware of, uh, of the weather and whatever. And I often go back time and time and time again, sometimes it just depends where, but I mean, if it's really remote, then I know I have one, one opportunity or when I was flying, I'm flying over an area like, I'm making uh, compositional decisions in seconds and I'll never be there again. And so I have to get it right. And the pilots always said, oh, Chris, how come you don't, you never talk, you never say anything. I said, well, no, like I am really concentrating. <laughs> I, am, I am working so hard to try and see. You know, I, I am making compositional decisions within milliseconds here because it's passing by. You're looking at it as a photographer through a photographer's eye, and yeah. he's looking at it through a pilot's eye. Yeah, so it's anyway, so it's, it's exhausting. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I have been um, at times in in looking through your book and want, uh, looking at your photos, Chris. I find them inspirational uh, in that they're they're so uh, um, uh, magical is almost the the, the word that I want to use. And uh, inspirational at times in that uh, they make me want to go to these places to see. In your past uh, as a photographer or just as a human being, um, have you met people that have inspired you? And uh, to what regard, uh, either, uh, either as a photographer or just as a person? Well, you use the word magical. People are magical. All kinds of people. Like everyone's magical. Sure. <laughs> and uh, I feel, I don't think I could point to any one individual, but I have been inspired by so many different people in so many walks of life, not just photographers, painters, poets, uh, writers, children. Uh, my wife inspires me in when I'm out traveling, you know, provides perspectives that I have never thought of. And, it, you know, it's her daughter, younger daughter inspired me. Like I get inspiration from so many different people. They usually have no idea of the inspiration they're giving me at the moment. And it, sometimes I don't, but, uh, in retrospect, uh, I gain so much from, uh, I gain, you know, I'm inspired by the earth. Like I, I have a deep passion for the planet and uh, I'm inspired by the planet as well as by my fellow human being, my fellow human friends. Um, we're all in one big mix together, and uh, it's a wonderful life. <laughs> well, Chris, you know, we're, uh, we're out of time right now, but I, I just want to say that you are by far, you are one of the most passionate people. You are blessed in that you are able and working 
to fulfill and follow your passion. And I don't think a lot of people in this world give themselves that opportunity or get that opportunity. So I hope and I know you consider yourself blessed to be doing what you're doing. You're uh, fantastic. You are, uh, fantastic is too small a word of a photographer and a human being. So thank you. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you very much. So once again, I want to thank my guest tonight, Chris Harris, a uh, photographer, a uh, fantastic human being for being here tonight. If you liked what you saw tonight, make sure you hit the like and subscribe button below. Make sure you uh, hit the bell for the notifications as well. And stay tuned for the next episode of Characters of the Untold Stories of the Caribou Chilcotin Coast. We'll get it right one of these times. Thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you soon. 